three, two, one. Oh, God, we're bad at that. The Garner Andrews Show with Bryce Kelly presents That Was Close. You should probably never drink your own pee. It's basically, it's salt water. I have said this, I think in this podcast, I've said this on the radio show. I've said it around the table at Christmas dinner, and I've probably come off as a real downer when I do say it, but it needs to be said. As I speak, Bryce, right now, there is someone bobbing around the ocean. (laughs) It's amazing how often I talk about this. I like that you bring it up at Christmas dinner. Well, I'll be driving down the highway with my best girl, and I'll be like, hey, did you ever stop and think that right now? There's somebody lost at sea, and we don't know where they are, and they're losing hope? Maybe they're on a, you know, a chunk of styrofoam from a TV, or maybe they have a life jacket. Maybe they're in a lifeboat. Uh, but there is someone right now lost at sea. Today's bonkers tale of survival, it's the granddaddy of all lost at sea tales. Ooh. This is the real-life survival tale of Jose Salvador Alvarenga. Do you want to play that game? The uh, one where you have to guess what year this story takes place by listening to clips of some of the big songs from that year. Songs that uh, Jose Alvarenga would not have enjoyed because he was too busy being lost at sea. Yeah, that's a full-time job being lost at sea. He would not have heard any of these songs. I put together a little compilation. I want you to take a listen and see if you can guess what year this is. Okay, it's Muse Madness, so it's recent. I will wait for you. Mumford and Son. Here's your favorite. Here comes, oh no. Oh, Lumineers. Oh, hey. Great year to be a banjo maker. Uh huh. How about this? <laughs> Open Gundam Style. Oh, man. Open Gundam Style. Or this nugget. These are all the same here? Yeah. God. Those last two songs, Carly Rae Jepsen and Psy, they have the exact same beat. Did you notice that? It's like I beat mixed them together. I'm like a DJ. I'm on the ones and twos, the wheels of steel. It's like your Skrillex. (laughs) So, Bryce, what year do you figure this tale took place? I will say 10 years ago, 2013. So close. 2012. God. This story begins November 17th, 2012. November 2012. That's pretty much 2013. I'm Uh, I'm saying I'm right. Whatever you need to tell yourself. It starts out November 17th, 2012 in a small fishing village in Costa Azul, Mexico. Jose Salvador Alvarenga, he was 36 or 37 years old at the time. No one really knows. I don't even think he knows exactly how old he is. That's a red flag. But he was an experienced fisherman. I feel like you should know how old you were. If you were to give me any month of any year, I could probably tell you how old I was with simple math. Maybe his parents didn't keep good records. Yeah, that's a maybe, shame. <laughs> maybe he was just sort of like a whatever. It's a 35 maybe he, or 36. Maybe he was like an extreme latchkey kid. To the next level. Yeah. So he planned to do a full day and a bit of deep sea fishing. And by a full day and a bit, I mean, he planned to be gone for about 30 hours, all day, all night, uh, and into the next morning. 
And the guy that he normally fished with, who was also a very experienced fisherman, he wasn't available that day. So he recruited a 23-year-old named Ezekiel Cordoba to come along and help out. But the thing about Cordoba was he had very little fishing experience. He was just coming along as an extra set of hands. So you're telling me these guys are going to go work for 30 consecutive hours? On the high seas, yeah. That's a work ethic I do not share. And this boat, by the way, it's not like a fishing boat that you might see in Deadliest Catch or that documentary called Perfect Storm with George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg. His was just like a 23-foot-long fiberglass skiff, meaning it was all exposed. There was no cabin on board, no bathroom, no sleeping quarters. There was no downstairs. The kind of boat you would see people pulling behind their car on the way to the lake. Yeah, but like, an, this his was fiberglass, but more like the, I don't know, like that aluminum one where you sit in the back and you rev the engine sure, okay. with your hand. It did have a small gasoline-powered outboard motor on the back, and it had a cooler on it about the size of a deep freeze to keep the fish they caught in. So for you and I to visualize the size of this boat, I googled, how long is a Ford F-150 pickup truck? I did the math. His boat was about three feet longer than that truck I drive. So not real big. So tight squeeze. Yeah. The guys, they weren't too far into the journey when a storm blew in and pushed them way off course and out to sea. And it sounds like a doozy because it lasted five days. Oh. So the part I don't understand is how did no one see this storm coming if it struck like almost immediately after they pushed off? I don't want a victim blame. I don't know where this is going. Mm -hmm. I do not remember this story at all. Uh, But if I'm going to go for 30 hours out into the ocean to go fishing, I might check the weather forecast. Well, I was going to say, I would probably start a petition to have the local TV weatherman fired. (laughs) Just saying. Just saying. Just saying. So the weather's really bad. They're getting tossed about like a cork inside your Auntie Phyllis's Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville at 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Ooh, that's just specific. That's good writing. That paints a picture. Yeah. Jose Alvarenga, again, he's the experienced guy. He was doing his best to kind of steer the boat into the waves. You don't want to catch the waves sideways because you'll flip over and die. That's what I always say. And Ezekiel Cordoba, the inexperienced guy, he's bailing water with a bucket like he's demon-possessed, but at the same time... He's barfing his guts out because the sea was so rough. Can you imagine? Oh, that's a bad day. So anyway, they're they're about 50 miles out to sea now. They got absolutely pounded by the storm, blown off course. Their GPS, which, by the way, was not waterproof, was destroyed in the storm. They did manage to place a call to Alvarenga's boss on the two-way radio, and the boss was like, calm down, give me your coordinates, we'll send help. But they couldn't give coordinates because, again, the GPS had been destroyed in the storm. So the boss is like, okay, well, drop anchor. We will come find you. But they didn't bring an anchor. Oh, boy. Also, they didn't have a sail. Oh, jeez. They didn't have any oars. Okay. No anchor. Uh, And they didn't have any running lights. They couldn't control their direction and no one could see them. And... On top of all that, after they had made contact with Alvarenga's boss on the two-way radio, the battery died, and they lost most of their fishing gear in the storm. So they, you know, couldn't even really fish to feed themselves. This is like, it's almost like they did everything wrong. Yeah. Hey, I get no victim blame. Not to victim blame, but 
A GPS for a boat that's not waterproof? That's what I read, and I thought, he's, can that be right? That seems like a whoopsie-daisy. I don't know. That seems like a flaw. Alvarenga's boss, though, he did put together a search party after he got that panicked radio message, but the weather and the visibility was so bad. And again, they didn't even have the slightest idea where these guys were. They called off the search after just two days. Oh, boy. So this storm lasted five days? Well, so far, yeah, five days. And then two days of searching? Yep. Oh, my God. The angry sea continued to rain down the blows on the two fishermen. That's good. That's really good. Alvarenga, he described the waves in The Guardian uh, like being tossed straight up getting a three-story high view of everything and then suddenly being dropped like you're in a plummeting elevator. And this went on for hours. Good Lord, that'd be horrifying. What's not helping either is that despite the fact that their fishing trip had barely started, they'd already caught about a thousand pounds of fish and they had it on board in the deep freeze size cooler thing, but they had to throw it all overboard because it was making the boat too unstable. I read that they already had caught enough fish to pay them both, and they could live off that money for a week. So not a ton of money, but if you consider in less than a day, they'd done a week's worth of work. So not too shabby. And, you know, that's got to suck to have to throw it all back. Yeah, that's the exact opposite of what you want to do. Yeah. But I guess it makes sense. Also, probably after a bunch of time, doesn't smell great. No, I couldn't imagine. So they're tossing the bloody fish carcasses back into the ocean one by one, which sounds exhausting, but now they have a new fear. Would the blood from the fish attract sharks? Oh, my God. The day turned to night, and the guys were exhausted, wet, hungry, and cold. They eventually, what they did, and this is pretty smart, they flipped the um, the cooler. the it, Like, it's a big cooler, like the size of a deep freeze. They flipped it over... And then they kind of huddled underneath it. And imagine, too, it just had dead fish in it. That's got a reek. So they huddled underneath it, hugging and wrapping their legs around each other to try and keep warm and dry. But they couldn't because there was so much water coming into the boat and they had to take turns. So one guy would stay under the cooler while the other guy went and bailed water. And then they would switch after 10 or 15 minute shifts. They just kept going back and forth. Oof, that sounds exhausting. Eventually, they managed to get the water situation inside the boat under control. As the hours turned to days and the days to weeks, Alvarenga somehow, he managed to catch fish, turtles, jellyfish, and birds with his bare hands. Jellyfish? Yeah, oh, there's something coming up. I'll tell you, yeah, it's... I know one thing about jellyfish. Yeah. It's the, you need the pee-pees. Oh, yeah, if you get stung. If you get stung? That's stingray, right? I thought that was jellyfish. Not a marine biologist. Let me Google this on a work computer. I barely graduated high school. So what he would do, he'd lay down on his stomach, I guess, with his chest on the edge, and he would cautiously put his arms in the water because they're worried that there's sharks about. And then he would wait for a a, a fish to swim between his hands, And then he would slam his hands together and dig his fingernails into the scales of the fish and then just yank them into the boat. That actually worked? Well, he said he lost a lot of them at the start, but he eventually got pretty good at it. He got into a groove. Jeez, that's pretty impressive. And he was able to catch a lot of fish. Then what he'd do is he would carve them up with his knife, dry them in the sun, and then he and Cordoba would eat them. He also said 
that from time to time, flying fish would just land in the boat. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. How dumb would you feel if you were a flying fish and that's how it all ended? You have the entire ocean as a target and you land in a tiny little boat. Idiot. Oh, trigger warning. Ready? Oh boy, I'm ready. Trigger warning. Sometimes when they'd catch turtles, they would drink the turtle blood. I will give you a moment now to barf uncontrollably into your waste paper basket. <laughs> oh, you. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, it gets grosser, too. Alvarenga says that he was so hungry at times that he would eat his own fingernails or he would pull jellyfish out of the water and pop them into his mouth raw. And he told this reporter, Jonathan Franklin, who wrote a book about this whole thing. He told Franklin, he said, it burned the top part of my throat, but it wasn't too bad. I don't think I could do that. Oh, my God, that's disgusting. Oh, I have another skill testing question for you. I didn't even know you could do that with a jellyfish. I assumed they would just sting you like crazy. All the way down. And then you'd have to get pee-peed on. Yeah. Skill testing question. Ready? Mm -hmm. Sometimes when they were super thirsty, the men would be forced to drink their own pee-pee But what did we learn from the episode about Ricky McGee, the guy that was lost in the Australian outback for more than 70 days? Do you remember? No, I think I blocked that from my memory. I remember the story. I don't remember this particular part. When you drink your own pee-pee, let it cool down first because it's not quite as disgusting. Jeez, yeah. You don't remember that? I remember why I blocked it out of my memory. Here's the thing, people, too. Like, I'm not a survival expert. I'm not a pee-pee expert. I'm not a marine biologist, but you should probably never drink your own pee. It's basically, it's salt water. Ugh. I guess if you're in a situation where that's your only option, let it cool. Let it cool. Let it cool. Put an ice cube in it. Take it on the rocks. (laughs) If you have some mint. (laughs) Oh, my God. God, I hope I'm never in a position where that's what I have to resort to. But I'm glad I have that tip in my back pocket now. Oh, I hope we cut this part out of the podcast. Whew. One day, the skies got really, really dark, and they eventually, they just opened right up. The guys deployed their makeshift rain collection system, which to me just sounds like a bunch of water bottles, maybe a bucket. And they managed to collect enough rainwater to satisfy their thirst for a minute or two. They stripped off their clothes, and they just let the rainwater wash them clean. Oh, that's good. And they kind of gorged on the rainwater a little bit, but then they realized, whoa, 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 we're going to have to ration this if we're going to survive. Some days were better than others, too. On the good days, they might find bits of discarded food or plastic bottles in the water. They actually got quite good at spotting the good stuff in the ocean. And by good stuff, they got good at knowing what garbage was worth hauling into the boat and what wasn't. Apparently, at one point, they found one of those green plastic garbage bags just floating in the ocean and they pulled it in and it was full of old cabbage and carrots so they ate that they even found half a jug of spoiled milk and when you're used to drinking turtle blood in your own pee pee you're not going to say no to some spoiled milk right no i suppose that's the least awful of those three options yeah so they drank the milk gross The two men would spend their time talking about their families. In particular, they would talk about how they had let their mothers down, 
how they were just bad sons and how much they wanted to hug their mothers and apologize for being a lot of work, if you oh, know what I mean. Oh, boy. So you're saying the vibes on this boat are Bit of a good. downer. Bit of a downer. How hard would it be to keep the faith in a situation like this? I could probably, I don't know, I could probably paint on a smile for a couple of days, maybe a week. But now they've been bobbing around in the ocean for nearly four months. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Four months? They have been out there for four months at this point. That's the equivalent of two summer vacations when you're a kid. And remember when summer vacation, it went on forever when you were, now can you imagine two of those in a row? Four months stuck yep. in the middle of the ocean. Yep. Holy cow. No wonder they're eating jellyfish. I was expecting you to say it's been like 17 days. No, they're- Four months? They're up at a, is that a quarter of a year? No, that's a third of a year. Third of a year? Oh so, my God. Four months in- and it was around this time that Alvarenga says the young, inexperienced guy, Cordoba, lost hope. He was really sick from eating raw food, probably from drinking turtle blood and rancid milk. And he was refusing to eat anything despite Alvarenga's insistence. According to the Guardian article, Alvarenga says that one morning Cordoba woke up and said, I am dying. I am dying. I am almost gone. Jose said, no, let's just take a nap. And he laid down beside Cordova, but Cordova started convulsing before he tensed right up and died. It's now four months into the ordeal, and Jose Alvarenga is all alone. Yikes, so he died right on the boat. Yeah. Alvarenga says that for the next four days or so, he contemplated suicide, but... Because his companion was gone and he couldn't bring himself to do it because his Christian faith told him that he would be condemned to an eternity in the fiery pits of hell. Not not his words. Those were my words. God. If he took his own life. Man. So he didn't. He just kept on keeping on. That'd be tough. It's oh, been four yeah. months. The other One other person he had just died. Yep. As a matter of fact, it was so hard. He kept Cordoba's body in the boat for Six days? Oh, my God. It was having conversations with him. Oh, man. Well, I guess, like, it's been four months. You're, yeah. you're not functioning at your highest level. Yeah, he's lonely. He needed the companionship. Oh. However, there are skeptics that say, uh, hey, did you really throw him overboard? Oh, no. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, some people yeah. think that uh, <sighs> yeah. it became an all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh -huh. Oh, boy. So and I think that skepticism, I think it's still out there to this very day. We'll actually talk about that in a minute here. That thought entered my head right away. There's no way. There's no way. Oh, I couldn't do it. No, not when you're getting good at catching fish and jellyfish with your bare hands. Why would you eat your friend? Yeah. And two, also, I, there was a conversation, I think, that the two of them had on the boat as well that, especially Cordoba, he's like, if I die, if I don't make it out of here, you need to do two things. You need to go back to my hometown and you need to go tell my mom I love her. The second thing is, don't eat me. I'm not even joking. Apparently they had that conversation about not eating each other, but... Um, That's when you know things are not going great. Oh, when yeah. you have to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's around this time, you're feeling really, really desperate. You're four months in. We're skipping over large chunks of time right away here, or we'd be here for three hours, and I would still have a piece of apple stuck to the roof of my mouth. <laughs> but 
It's around this time, shortly after Cordoba died, that uh, Alvarenga said he spotted several huge cargo ships. But because he was in a tiny fishing boat, again, about the size of a Ford F-150, but without the luxuries of Ford F-150, no leather seats, no 10 cup holders. So nobody could see him on the vast ocean. So they these big cargo ships would just keep steaming by. Ooh, that's heartbreaking. Uh-huh. I can't imagine how frustrating that would be, sitting on the boat and just watching these other ships in the horizon just disappear. That'd be terrible. I think that would be worse than seeing no boats. Like to see a boat or to see a plane and them not see you. Oh, I think you're right. Jose said that his grandfather had taught him how to mark the passage of time by counting the phases of the moon. He figures he counted roughly 15 cycles of the moon. You know, like... um, Quarter moon, half moon. Yeah, new moon, quarter moon, full moon, that sort of thing. He said he knew that each cycle was roughly a month, so he figured he had been lost at sea at this point now for approximately 15 months. Again... I skipped over a huge chunk of time. So he's over a year out there. And it's on January 30th, 2014. So remember... November... 2012, he went missing. He did not set foot on land in 2013. He missed an entire year of setting foot on any kind of land. That's crazy. And then January 30th, 2014... He spotted land way off in the distance. And at first he thought it was, you know, his mind playing tricks on him. It was a mirage or something. But he kept seeing it. It didn't disappear. So when he got close enough, he's like, oh, my God, that's actual land. And he dove into the water off of his boat and swam to shore. He found himself on a tiny islet called Tile Islet. And I had to look up, what is an islet? And uh, it's exactly what you think when some it's, you know, when it's not quite an island, it's an island. It's a tiny island. I had no idea. I'd never heard of that before. I just thought an island was an island. No, they're usually pretty small, unnamed, uninhabited, have no vegetation. You know, they're quite often just a rock. So you said it's January 2014 now. Yes. So his, his math was a bit off, but not by yeah, much. Not by much. We'll talk about that in a second here. This tile islet, this little thing that he swam up on, it's fortunately was part of the Marshall Islands, so he was in luck because there was a couple living there. Oh my god. And when you look at pictures of where this guy washed up, it is remarkable. We are talking about the absolute middle of nowhere. There is nothing else out there. Just a tiny little ring of islands about six kilometers across called Ibon Atoll, and him hitting this small cluster of islands would be like throwing a basketball from the International Space Station and landing it in a public swimming pool. Like, it's crazy to think that he landed there. Because he was in Mexico, is where he left. Yep. Where are these things? Uh, I didn't know this was going to be a test. <laughs> okay. I'm just wondering how, like, how far he traveled. We're going to get to oh, that. Oh, okay. That's coming up. He traveled a long way. We'll we'll discuss in just a second. So anyway, he crawls up on this beach naked. He starts yelling at this couple, but he's speaking Spanish. So there's a language barrier. Oh, right. But this couple can tell there's something up with this guy. So they bring him into their house and they try to help him. He's drawing pictures of a, you know, of a a man with a beard and a boat. And he gets frustrated because 
how do you draw a picture of being lost at sea? You know? Oh, yeah. It's like a high stakes game of charades. Yeah. The Pictionary. Exactly. Pictionary. Uh, Shipwreck Survivor Pictionary. That should be a game. And so, friend at this point is not in the boat. No, no, no. He eventually had to toss. Oh, he tossed me in after six days. Right, right, right. You said that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this nice couple, they eventually, they go to load him into their boat so they can take him for medical attention at one of the larger islands. But he just got out of a boat and he's not real anxious to get back into a boat. And understandable. That makes sense. But they somehow, they convince him that he's going to be okay and they whisk him away and they get him medical attention. After 11 days in hospital, he's deemed good to go and he's released. Oh my God, that's it? Yeah. So shortly after his release, Alvarenga traveled back to El Salvador where he was reunited with his parents, whom he hadn't talked to in years. As a matter of fact, they kind of thought he was dead even before he went missing from Mexico. Kind of weird, right? Oh. So it kind of it kind of tracks that he might not know when his birthday is or oh, okay. how old he is. I don't know that he was real close to his parents. Okay, this makes more sense. Um, he even reunited with the daughter that he had left when she was a baby. Ooh. I don't know how things are going between all of them these days. I don't know if they're good, but they did reunite shortly after he was released from hospital. And he did go see Cordoba's parents and take the message to them that their boy loved them. In the end, Jose Salvador Alvarenga had drifted somewhere between 9,000 and 11,000 kilometers. Oh, wow. And had been lost at sea for 438 days, or about 14 and a half months. But this is only the silver medal in being lost at sea. There was a Japanese sea captain named Ojuri Jukichi back in 1815 that survived 484 days... So only 46 days longer than Alvarenga. Wow. Do you think, though, like if you're Alvarenga and you see the shore in the distance and you're like, oh, my God, is that an island? Is that an islet? And you find out that you only had 46 days to go to beat the old record. Would you just would you just still bob around <laughs> out there or would you be done? Because <laughs> oh nobody ever remembers the silver medalist. Yeah, that's a little tough to swallow. Yeah, yeah, went through this horrific experience only to find out that... Second place? Everyone's like, hmm, someone had a worse time than you. Hey, at least it wasn't bronze. At least it wasn't brown gold. Holy cow, that's wild. I know. So, yeah, that record stood for 200 and some years. I can't believe he lived that long yeah. floating on the ocean. In 2015, Jose sat down with a journalist named Jonathan Franklin, who we referenced earlier, and he told him this story. Franklin turned that into a book called 438 Days, which you can buy right now. And this is juicy. Shortly after the book was published, the family of Ezekiel Cordoba, the young guy that died on the boat, his family sued Alvarenga for $1 million and accused him of eating Cordoba's body. I don't know how that played out or how you prove that someone ate your son, but it was a thing in the courts. Jose's lawyer vehemently denies it, says, that's BS. Yeah, you probably need a good amount of proof. Yeah, I don't know how you prove that. I'm not sure. But that right there is the amazing 438-day survival story of Jose Salvador Alvarenga. My sources for this one, Bryce Kelly, an episode of The Crux podcast. 
I listened to that. Uh, Wikipedia has a very thorough timeline of this whole thing. So I read Wikipedia. Uh, there's that whole article from The Guardian, which is um, from Jonathan Franklin, and it's just an excerpt from that book, 438 Days. But I'm going to read that book now. I want to know more. I want to know what happened to the boat. So he washed up on this islet. This couple's like, whoa, damn. Where'd you come from? Whisked him away to a hospital, but like his boat must still be sitting there. I don't know. Or, well, he dove in. Remember, he swam from the boat to shore. Like, did the boat just keep going? And that's, I think there was some skepticism, too, about the whole tale. Because, like, hey, man, where's your boat? Where's your boat? So A lot of cynics out there. Yeah, did he fall from space? I believe him. So do I. Based on this 30 minutes, (laughs) I've heard this story. That's a good one. I like that one. That's one of my favorite stories. That's horrifying. It is. That's horrifying. I can't believe... 14 months? 14 and a half months. In a boat barely bigger than a pickup truck. Yeah. With no shelter, no roof, no nothing. Nope. And he survived. Like, that seems impossible. I don't know. I couldn't think of enough things to talk to myself about. Yeah. So I can understand why some of that skepticism comes in, because it's like, how on earth could you possibly survive that long in that boat? But I guess when you're desperate enough and you're drinking the turtle blood and eating jellyfish, anything's possible. It seems so juvenile, too, to think about this, too. When you have to... I was thinking the same thing the whole time. I just didn't want to be the one to say it. You don't want to use one of your buckets for it because you need to keep that thing sterile in case it starts raining. You don't You don't want to. What they probably did was hang over the side. I know, but what if you fall in? What if a rogue wave comes out of where... And now you're really screwed. Which, by the way, was going to be the title of this podcast. <laughs> 